Let's, uh, let's get started, shall we? Uh, we hereby join ourselves to the Master, Yeshua the Messiah, the Righteous One, who is the Bread of Life and the True Light, the source of eternal salvation for all those who hear Him. Like a branch that remains in a vine, so may we remain in Him, just as He also remains in the Father and the Father in Him, in order that they may remain in us. May the grace of the Master, Yeshua the Messiah, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit abound to us. And everyone said... Amen. How cool was that, eh? Since That's on the end. Yeah. All right. So, uh, just to, to make sure everybody's up to speed on what I'm doing with the with the study guide, as as Gregory was saying, there's some kind of confusion about the uh, the reading plan that's in the appendix of the study guide. I am actually removing that little by little. Uh, as we've adjusted it for class. We've made uh, a dramatic difference over the past two weeks to give you lesser readings so that you could become a little wimpy. You have one more wimpy reading next week and you will end up at the cult um, next Tuesday when we get together. We will, we will have finished all of Yeshua's ministry. So as we discussed, the Synoptic Gospels, 75% of the Synoptic Gospels deal with his life up to Passion Week. 25% are for Passion Week. Except for the Gospel of John. Half is his ministry, and half of the Gospel is literally the Passion Week. So we'll be up to the last week of Yeshua's life next Tuesday. And uh, your readings, I wanted you to read the whole Passion Week all in one in all four Gospels, all in one week. But I tried to do that this week, and it's impossible. So, we won't be doing that. So we'll, uh, we'll come up with uh, something new there. But I am changing the reading schedule because of that, and then uh, we'll, we'll take it from there. Uh, my goal is that when we finish Passion Week and we're done with the Gospels, we'll have at least two or three classes to review what we've gone over, what we've learned from the Gospels, with regard to being non-Jews and the halakha that the Master is kind of expecting of us, or how he treats non-Jews and so forth. Um, so I'm hoping that I can get those classes at least titled properly, and Joshua and Gregory can uh, jump in there and give me a breather, so I can actually sit there and help with the holster, you know, in the next couple of weeks, in case a new holster should show up. That uh, holster took somewhere on the order of four and a half months to make. Wow. Yeah, he's uh, right leather works. He's, I think he's at Texas. I'm not sure. I'm sure he is. Yeah, but I got to pick. <laughs> it's the, a good one. That's right. I, I got to pick not only the leather. I picked the cow from which the leather came. What what shade of coffee were you looking for? Cappuccino or what? Yeah, it was good. So it's gonna be good. That's probably my third right leather holster. That's good. <laughs> has to be. Has to be. Organic okay. Only. That's right. Organic only, right. All right, so we're on lesson five. And uh, last week, I think you had a whole bunch of John readings. This time, you had a whole bunch of Luke readings. I think you had like five or six chapters of Luke towards the end of that uh, all at once. So I lost track of, of having not read Luke very often. Yeah. Of how much of the Beatitudes is later in Luke? It is much later. In fact, I had trouble actually putting this next lesson together because 
as I was reading this lesson, I kept having to stop and go, wait a minute, I must be doing the wrong lesson. Because I know Joshua talked about this last week. And so did Greg. And he said these... But that was from John. Yeah. And now it's from Luke. So it would have been great if I could put it all together in one week, but you would have been reading and not been able to go to work and stuff like that. So. <laughs> but yeah, it was good stuff. So uh, quickly to run through this before we get to... Uh, tonight's uh, discussion. What about this remez about the finger of God? I think, I think Greg, you came up to me after class last week, didn't you? And I was talking about the finger of God and Egypt and all of that as a result of, I guess it was, must have been a John comment last week? It wasn't me. It wasn't you. It was some guy that looked like you. We had a conversation about it on Saturday. <coughs> Relating to... Might have been you. Might have been. Might have been you. You and I talked about it a lot. Okay. So, uh, if it's the finger of God, by the finger of God that I cast out demons, and the kingdom of God has come upon you. So, uh, of course, you've got the passage in Exodus 8 about uh, Pharaoh, finger of God, and how the magicians knew. Uh, but I had forgotten about Deuteronomy 9. And uh, the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. So, what do you think about that? Well, first off, I thought the one about from Exodus yeah. was something of an inside joke. We <clears throat> talked a little about this on Saturday. So, the accusers are saying Yeshua is casting out demons by um, Beelzebub, who is um, Lord the of the flock. Well, if you assuming that the translation in the Greek is supposed to be from Hebrew, Baal Zavuv, it is, yeah, like Lord of the Fly, I think singular, but anyway, the point is, they named the, a fly is named after the sound that it makes, essentially, or something to that effect, so, um, or, yeah, so the, the, if you think about it, you've got the king of small flying insects, is what they're accusing him of casting out these demons by, so when Yeshua references the finger of God, and it pulls you back to Exodus, the irony is that particular plague, the the uh, magicians can't replicate it because right. it's the first Moses, one they can't do. Right? Moses makes bats, small flying insects, appear out of nothing. They were he throws that he has Aaron throw up some dust, and all of a sudden they turn into gnats covering all over the place. So the, there's an inside joke here almost where Yeshua is essentially saying, "Oh, you say that this by the Lord of the Flies." Ironically enough, last time we were talking about Lord of the Flies, someone else who was saying, "Oh, we can't do that." But then the irony is here also that he is arguing, of course, that this can't be the work of Hasatan, which is exactly the point of the Finger of God reference, because the magicians who were able to do, through black arts, the first two plagues, yeah. couldn't replicate that one. So Yeshua is effectively not only providing like a little you know, uh, inside joke, he's also trying to reference the idea that you're saying I can do this by nefarious means, I'm saying that's not possible. Exactly. It's impossible. What is possible is this guy could give a great drosh like that while actually putting that handgun in and out of it. Is that great? He didn't miss a beat. That's good. I, I got a little, a little rhythm going there, too. Nicely done. Nicely done. So John 10.30. Who's got John 10.30? can give me that real quick. Real quickly. Or at all. Isn't that where he says, um, I and the Father are one? I think it is. Is that the one? It's, it's following right after 
the thing about uh, the fact that he was there for Hanukkah. Right. Is that the one, Greg, you got? Uh, yeah. I don't. No? Uh, Anybody? I Nobody's got it? Yeah. yeah. John 1030? Yeah. Uh, and by the way, I and the Father are one. Yeah. Just want to make sure. Good job. So this is where, we, you know, we, I think we discussed this a little bit last week. They pick up the stones. They're ready to, to, to stone him for blasphemy. And ultimately, and they did that several times, you know, passing through their midst, he escaped their grasp, and some of these other weird ways that he seems to get away. Um, but if somebody tells you he never claimed to be God, then, gosh, it doesn't look like the Jews picked up on that. They, uh, they definitely got it. So the Jews answered him in verse 33, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Boom, there it is. But wait, there's more. So on that particular reference, the detractors who like to argue with you, <laughs> of which I am not really one of those, although I do like arguing with you on occasion, <laughs> um, follow up by saying Yeshua then drops this bombshell of a really unusual response in which he says, has it not been written in the Tanakh, I said, you are gods. And then he says, if he called them gods, whom the word of God came, and then I'm skipping a little bit, do you say of him who the Father sanctified to the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? So the question is, most people, like the detractors, read this and say, see, Yeshua actually says he's not God. But the irony is, if you follow Yeshua's words throughout the, the Gospels, and we have been doing, especially that, that whole chunk of Luke, over and over and over again, even when he's asked non-serious, unimportant questions, he almost never responds directly. Right. He very rarely answers a question clearly. In fact, earlier in the same passage, when they ask him, are you the Messiah, tell us plainly, Yeshua says, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But that's it. He doesn't say, yes, I am, or no, I'm not. Right. It's like, look at the works. John the baptizer, in the beginning of John, John chapter 1, says very clearly, no, I'm not the Messiah. They ask him, are you the Messiah? No. End of story. Right. Yeshua doesn't do that with either of these two questions. So I think rather than trying to say that Yeshua's statement here claims that he's saying he's not God, I think it fits totally with the way that Yeshua portrays himself and talks in general. In fact, if John had had him come out and say, absolutely, bow down and worship me, then like that would have, I mean, we'd have torn that out of our Bible and said this obviously can't be true. Right. It doesn't exactly. fit. Exactly right. What is his normal comment? What's his normal approach after he does a miracle, after he heals someone? What's he normally do? Is it not to tell anyone? Don't tell anyone. Right. Um, suppose he he has a demon that's making someone mute, and now the demon can speak. What does he do? Shuts up the demon. Won't let him talk. We know you, Yeshua. Keep that to yourself. It's almost like it's not time to reveal the man behind the curtain. I love well, it. you kind of Luke. Luke really reveals like a little bit more about just the, the repeated phrases like "He who has ears, let him hear." Right? Like basically saying like, "Look, if you're not, if you need me to come out and say it, then you're obviously not ready for it anyway." Like it, I could say whatever not you want. Attention. Right? I could say whatever you want. I could look you in the eye and say, "I am the Messiah," and you wouldn't believe me mm -hmm. anyway because right. if you're you going for to some believe, kind of you proof or something. Already. I think it's your turn again. Yeah. <laughs> 
Right, exactly. And I think we, I mean, we're talking about the same guy who spoke in parables. And the disciples say, okay, we're confused. Why yeah. are you telling, talking to everybody in parables? And, you know, you are telling us behind the scenes what these mean. Right. Why are you doing this to the, the crowds by not giving them the inside scoop? And his response is that. It's to say those who have ears are they're going to get, get it. Basically, the point being um, that Yeshua is not going to spell it out clearly because he wants people to legitimately um, pursue it. I mean, he even has people coming up to him saying, hey, I'll follow you, and he's turning them away. That's right. So what is one other reason why he wouldn't just come out and say, it's true. Uh, Yeah, I'm the guy. Why would he not do that in this time, in this moment? Why would he not? What would be the problem? One thought that I had was that too many people would probably rise up and try to fight for him, and then and the prophecy what? wouldn't be, and would try to save him from getting captured. Okay. Or, from, and they, like, or kind worse. of an uprising. An uprising for what? For zealots at war. To throw off Rome. Right. Yeah. Right. And Which wasn't trying wasn't to bring for that. the kingdom in now. Right. Exactly. And, it, and he only said, don't go tell to the Jews, right? Because the Samaritan woman, he said, go tell. Good point. The man with the, man mm-hmm. with the demon possessed, he said, go tell. Yeah. So, and You're those were good, outside. That's a good point. The Samaritan yeah. is not a Jew, half Jew at that. Right. And then you've got the uh, garrison yeah. or, you know, demoniac. Good. He's like, he wanted to leave, right? He wanted to take me with you. He's yeah. like, no, no, no. Yeah. You go tell everybody what God did for you. That's good. That's a good Which point. It's kind of neat because when you think, here's Messiah loving, caring, all that stuff. I want to go with you. You think the instinct would be, sure, jump in the boat. But instead he goes, no, go tell. Stay here. Now it's interesting that he wants the Jews to not tell. But he wants the non-Jews to tell. I think, I mean, to me this fits totally with the, the model of God and his people. I mean, it seems to me like um, with the non, it's like Paul and Romans, right? And we're talking about like this idea that somehow, well, let's face it, us Gentiles are we're losers. We need help. Exactly. We need somebody to tell us what's going on. Right. But when we're talking about the Jewish people, they receive uh, they receive God's word directly from God. And if they're not able to piece that together and figure out what's going on, we have a problem. Right. That's why I love Brother Upham's comment a couple weeks ago when he said, okay, this is year 4,000. What happened on day four? I've actually used that a couple of times since then. But the idea is that I am here. You should be seeing me, right? Yeah, exactly. And to me, that's kind of why it's... Because you know better. Right, exactly. Yeah. And that was his point we read in Luke, where he's saying, you guys can figure out what the weather's going to be based on the sky, yeah. but you're not paying attention to the signs of the times. Exactly. Good. Are you paying attention here? You got, you got. A, I know you got at least one thing in there. From <laughs> oh, the oh! I didn't, I didn't even see that. <laughs> it came in during the holster move. Like, it must have been. Yes, <laughs> that's right. There was <laughs> no haptic feedback. It, yeah, there's no haptic feedback. Well, don't break the thing. Apparently, okay. TJ has checked in. This is from yes. Peter has it. Yeah. Yeah, I got um, Peter too. <laughs> uh, there's there's a question from Fred and Frederick. We don't use full names. Uh, so he says, apparently it wasn't time for him to reign, but isn't there some kind of thought that he would have reigned if they were ready in the apostolic writing written somewhere, 51, 52, 54? Okay. If they were ready, he would have reigned? 
Yeah, that's what, kind of going back to what well, we Well, yeah, we, had, we said that last week, right? That he would, if they were willing, if they were, if they were willing, he would have, but they right, were not. Kind of, that, that got that whole thing going. Jerusalem. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, towards the end. Tell me about the, uh, the Samaritan. We got the story of the Good Samaritan this oh. week. That, that kind of, I was about to bring that up in context of what you were just talking about, about telling non-Jews to go and tell everybody, because it's like, his whole point of that story, I, this is hilarious, but this is really like the first time that I've seen what he was doing. He's talking to a bunch of Jews, and he's just asked by a Jew, like, who's my, who's neighbor? my neighbor? As if to like, what, how are you going to respond to this whole, like, I mean, because we know from history and from a lot of the things that are quoted that there's a big divide between Jew and Gentile. Right. Huge, I mean, they're barely speaking to each other. And then he comes along and basically like, tells the story that points out, like, uh, like these Jews just like leave this guy for, for dead, basically. Yeah. Yeah. But who saves him? It's a non-Jew. It's That's a, your neighbor. That's your neighbor. Essentially saying, everybody's your neighbor. Not like Jews aren't and yeah. non-Jews are, yeah. but yeah. it's basically saying, like, anybody who needs your help. It was great. What... Go ahead. I was gonna say if I could just do a total like uh, one of those weird mind flip things. So on that point, my dad's always commented on, "Wait a minute, who's the neighbor?" And he says, "The one who showed mercy toward him, not the one who received mercy." Almost saying, "Your neighbor, in effect, is the one is 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 dependent almost on you. You act like a neighbor, right. and that person becomes your neighbor." That's exactly right. In other words, if you, it, it's like. It's not because he's your neighbor that you're doing this. It's because you act like a neighbor that makes him your neighbor. Right. And so, the, and, but so in effect, it's the definition is in a weird way up to you, but you're expected to expand it to the widest range possible. Yeah. So it's like on the one hand, you could you know people could try to argue well then that that means that I make the decision. But it's not really true because the expectations on you are really really high. You've got to treat everybody like your neighbor. And then once you do that, they are your neighbor. They are your neighbor. That's right. So give me one good reason why that's a good point. the priest would pass by. Actually cross the other side of the road and pass by and not help the guy. Unclean. What about unclean? He could have stopped. Very clean. Yeah. He could have thought that he was already dead. And then what? Just because you What would happen? He would be unclean. What does that mean? What's, that what's means that he can't do? go into the temple for a week, is it? Yeah, yeah. So but if, you, if you play that story out a little bit longer, that's still the wrong thing to do. Because when you find a body in a field, we already know what the Torah says about doing that. You basically have to determine the length and what's the closest well, While that's that. true, I think Ben's point is he wouldn't be able to go to work. Okay. Right? So if the priest is going to work, he would not be able to go to work because he would become unclean. Ashes of the red heifer, uh, third day, eighth day, that kind of thing. The same reason we said that Yeshua would have to go up to the festival a week early. Well, and just to escalate. Although that's weird because if you touch a dead guy and he rises from the dead, did you really touch <laughs> a dead guy? <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah. But to escalate it even further, for the priest, he's forbidden from touching a dead body that's not in his own. That's right. In fact, this is actually... Well, not, not his own, but 
By his own, own, own relative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. Him. You can touch your own dead body. That's him. My person might have been that. That's the big one. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Elizabeth. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, uh, yes. Well. Um, I will tell you. Apologies. I'll tell you a quick story. That is a, an Orthodox rabbi in town who made it a point to tell me that he could, when when one of my children was, uh, or my grandchildren actually was being born, he said, "Oh, I can go into that hospital, but I wouldn't be able to, you know, at Presbyterian or whatever." And I'm like, "Why is that?" He goes, "Because they have a a locked door between the maternity ward." And the rest of the hospital, which has a morgue in the basement. So I cannot go into that hospital because I'm a Cohen. I'm a priest. So like you were saying, he's not permitted right. to be in under a roof with a dead body. He so can't do that. There's a secondary story of sorts here, moral. Yeshua throughout his ministry repeatedly argues for halakhic leniency in cases of mercy. Over and over and over again, the whole Shabbat references that come healing on Shabbat. Sure. He's arguing that, uh, yeah, sure, you can take a uh, a reading of the scripture all the way out, all the way in, all the way out, and argue that you know we should never ever do X, Y, or Z because it might potentially violate a you know interpretation of the Torah, whatever. Yeah. yeah. But if you do that in, at the expense of people for their need for being merciful to them, taking care, healing the sick, in this case, taking care of someone who's Dangerously ill, yes. or, hurt. or perhaps um, dying. Right then, um, that that's worse. And so his argument is that love your neighbor takes precedence. So this fits that because Judaism eventually will agree with Yeshua on this point, and some did before him as well. That I mean, I believe the Talmud right says you're even you are absolutely encouraged. Yeah, almost obligated to go and check. And, and I think even the priest is given the exclusion that they don't have to worry mm-hmm. about that particular element if it's to you yeah, know to save a life. Yeah, so in this particular case, or if it's someone who doesn't have a, if they're a, have an unmarked grave, like, uh, I mean, uh, an unknown dead, like the, there's a, there's a huge mitzvah for burying someone that nobody knows. Right, right. And that, that's my point. So then, like, so at, in a way, Yeshua's making a halakhic point, but it's not to miss the bigger picture. But I think he uses the Levite and the priest very much on purpose. It's not just the most impressive people he could think of who were Jews. Right. He's trying to also say, you know, look, you guys, your righteousness is wonderful. When your righteousness means you, you refuse to help people, that's not good. Exactly right. Good. Well, he kind of contrasts that with, like, I, this is, I think Luke might be the first time that he comes out and says very, very clearly, like, one of the things that, that the Pharisees are guilty of from a hypocrisy standpoint, and that's that they love money, right. which is and, so and interesting, right? They so love that the means, notoriety. Right. And so they've built in halakhic leniencies when it when it actually benefits them, either monetarily or from a prestige yeah, standpoint, that is actually, places where they get to sit in the synagogue and yeah. whatnot, as opposed to halakhic leniencies for yeah. lives. The money thing has actually gone gone forward to today. So, um, even to the point of, you know, if you if you're supposed to sit shiva, you don't have to sit shiva if it will cost you too much money. So, the money thing's big. I think there even, um, I think there are even some leniencies in relationship to, um, I'm trying to think, if it's Shabbat or maybe maybe it's just some of the like the intermediate days, Kolam kind of, yeah. where there are certain things like 
really encourage you not to do X. But, but if it's going to be a significant financial loss, or if then, there's a sale and you're going to miss the oh, yeah, sale, oh yeah, during fast days, right? The fast times, yes. I, I, I That's not to say unbelievable. I, I appreciate it. Yeah, you appreciate it. Yeah, I'll, I'll take advantage of that. I'll go. Thank you. I listened to kind of to kind of a cool study on this, and uh, they said just picture this lawyer, and I don't think they're really that. It actually is a lawyer. Is that just a disciple? Well, no, no. A lawyer would be a person who studied in the law. The okay, Torah, okay. Right? Yeah. So and this is you're, which, you're looking to be a, a disciple, right? A Bible student. Not necessarily right. a Jewish disciple. No, yeah. not Jewish disciple. <clears throat> but I mean, rabbis had disciples. Sure. Then only oh, yeah. when I had disciples. Yeah. Okay. So it's kind of cool to think this guy's going. Okay. You know, uh, what's first, the priest? Yeah. The priest comes along. He goes, and, he, and the guy said, you know, the, the lawyer's probably like, yeah, that, who doesn't, that, who doesn't right? know that? Yeah. And the Levite, yeah, who doesn't know that? But he drops that, the when Samaritan. he throws the Samaritan bomb, he's like, oh no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now what am I going to say? Yeah. Now you bring up a good point. It's only in the church that this story has a title. What's the title? It's the story of the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan. Right. Did you know that the Good and Samaritan never appear in the Bible in the same verse? (laughs) In fact, isn't the Master's point, especially when you take it to some of the other parables that he gives, that the Samaritan is not good. He's only doing what is expected of him. Right? It, this would almost be an unrighteous servant or an unprofitable servant because he's only doing what's expected and nothing more. Although the Samaritan did go, did go over the top. Uh, did you find it kind of weird that periodically the Son of Man talks about the coming of the Son of Man? <laughs> I, don't know, I just thought that was weird. There's some then it, references. There's a couple of times when he does that. It's like when the Son of Man comes, will he find... Wait a second. I thought he was the Son of Man. <laughs> but if he's talking about Daniel's Son of Man, isn't he talking about when he comes again? The Son of Man. Okay. I don't know. What do you think? You've been talking late into your homework because I know you read the Bible at some point. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> You're set a precedent. That's right. That's right. Uh, I mean, I think, I think I tend to agree with Todd. I mean, if you remember... Uh, I think it was when he was being uh, when he was being tried in front of the priests. They said something, or maybe it was in front of Pilate, and he said, "He, you know, he said uh, he quotes Daniel. Says when when you see the Son of Man yeah. coming, coming in the cloud of great exactly. glory, yeah. right? So, so I, I, I guess my take is my current view is that." He makes references to that Daniel reference, which is clearly a reference to the coming when Mashiach comes for the Messianic age, which is not this coming. Sure. Which is proved to be not this coming. Exactly right. right. So, So is it just that we're getting an overview because we're reading the whole three and a half years worth in a couple of weeks? that we see him referenced and called the Son of Man, that he calls himself the Son of Man, but that maybe this crowd at that moment would not have thought it was him since he's referring to the other one. Is that where you're coming from? So it's like when you see the Son of Man coming, and they automatically think Daniel rather than him. Right, yeah, the, okay. refer- the reference is Daniel. Clearly, sure. yeah. 
because that's that. <clears throat> it's one of the few times. It's yeah. I mean, and that's the first time the Son of Man is ever used in the Tanakh, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. So, and it's clearly the one that's kind of most prominent. So, yeah. I think when he's using that title, Son of Man, he's playing, especially when he's talking to Pharisees. You know, he's playing off of a concept. Yeah. They are well-versed. Well-versed. Good. All right. <clears throat> and they really don't believe in Jesus sometimes. <laughs> they're trying to put him on the spot every second of the way, and they're just giving him a hard time. They're like, are you sure you can do this? But that's like, this is something I think is very important. You, you highlighted that in Luke, this reference, we have, they actually warn him about a plot it's exactly right. Against him. And they do it in Luke. They did it in John. So it clearly read, happened at least you, once. If you read that and you look at the overall relationship between Yeshua and the Pharisees, the reason why Yeshua is calling out the Pharisees as often as he is is because they're falling around everywhere. And it's not always in response to a comment from them that he has no. something to say about them. Yeah. So Whenever he sees something arrive, he says something. He says something. And sometimes when he doesn't see it, but he wants to make a point. But mm-hmm. the point is, though, that like, he doesn't do that to the Sadducees because they're really not there. They come and ask him one question, which we haven't gotten to yet, and that's basically it. That's the only interaction they really have with him. Yeah. Whereas, although ex- I, until... Although we think they send the scribes from well, time okay, to time. Fair yeah. enough, but until the end, when it's the Sadducees that have him put to death, yes. not the Pharisees. That's correct. So the Pharisees throughout this, there are moments, depending on which... A gospel reading, I can't remember exactly right now, but I want to say there are a couple times where some of the Pharisees are possibly, some of them may have some nefarious interest in oh, him. early on, surely, we saw a lot of that. But this is where I think most of the church gets their deal that the Pharisees were totally against him. Because in the beginning of the Gospels, they are. Well, but, but predominantly, though, it's theological. I mean, it's they seek to trap him, not physically trap him to get him in trouble with the yeah. Romans. They're, yeah. they're seeking they to want trap to discredit him. Because, him. Well, Yes, and at the same time, I think they also want to test him. You know, that's part of their job. They yeah. they want to make sure that if this guy is the Messiah, he's saying the right things. That's right. So I don't. I see the relationship between them. There is a certain degree of conflict, but I think that it's predominantly spiritual. It's a conflict over over halakha. It's a conflict over interpretations. Yes. It's an it's a um, internal conflict. It's not a, we don't, this guy is embarrassing us, we want to kill him conflict. Right, which is more the way the Sadducees said. They definitely do They're concerned about their their position, because their position is wrong to begin with. It's tenuous, and it's it's a lot more at risk. The Pharisees are trying to, in many ways, maybe trying to protect some of their interpretations of things so that it makes it comfortable for them. And maybe Yeshua calls them out and makes them uncomfortable. Yeah. But the Sadducees are the ones who have power and prestige because they've been in place illegally, for the Torah, yeah. by the Romans. So yeah. they have this disturbing relationship with the authority here that's, that mostly concerns them. Exactly right. Thank you. All right, so... You said they, they warned him... They did. They warned him. Herod's trying to kill But his own brothers, kill you. Uh, last lesson I think it was, his own brothers were like, go on up to the... Yeah, yeah. I mean, aren't you going to... To Jerusalem. Yeah, they're making fun of him almost. Don't worry about it. You're not really in danger. Yeah. Yeah, it's exactly right. Set him up for trouble. Exactly. And he kind of hung and then went in anyway. So, we've mentioned a couple of times that the Pharisees were following him around, and we saw a couple of weeks ago that they're actually following him into the Galilee. And the Pharisees would be in the temple area in Jerusalem. 
So name, I don't know, one, two, maybe three Pharisees that might be in the crowd following him. Nachtimon. Nachtimon. Nicodemus, very, very, very wealthy man. Joseph. Joseph of Arimathea, another wealthy man. Who? How else was Joseph of Arimathea dealing with the master? One of your young guys. Joseph of Arimathea. Anything? Anything? No. No. We'll get to it in two weeks. So he gave up his tomb for the master, and then finally. Probably, I think it's in Simon. He, he hosts him for lunch. He had him for lunch or dinner or something. I would have thought one other guy. I, I don't know if he would have been like following him around. Maybe okay. not because of his stature. But I think Gamliel. Yeah. I think Gamliel was. Uh, yeah. Gamliel did not oppose. He didn't. And in fact, <clears throat> he, he gave them a buy. To get out of some some stuff there. Yeah, you know. We'll see. All right. Uh, Let's jump to the Lazarus story. So, what was this story about this rich man? You got the poor beggar whose... The dogs actually licked his sores? I mean, that's that's gross. I didn't want one of you guys to lick my sores. Holy cow, (laughs) a dog? So... Who can, who can give me the, the, the parable real quick, or the story? In fact, this is the only story the Master tells. He tells a lot of stories, a lot of parables. This is the only one where he gives a name to one of the players. So the rich man was not named, but the poor beggar who was trying to gather the crumbs from under the rich man's table is named Lazarus. I've heard people say that, I mean, well, I've heard people say that the the other ones are parables, but this one's a true story. Could be. Because of a real name. Yeah. I don't... I've heard that too. I used to agree with that. I don't agree with it anymore. Could be. Don't know. What's... Give me the, give me the bottom line of the parable. Give me the, give me the story real quick. What happens? Um, you like got this, this, this rich guy and this poor guy. They both die. Mm-hmm. The rich man goes to Hades, according to my translation. Good. Yeah, um, we can work with that. Lazarus goes to be with Abraham. Okay, Abraham's bosom, as they put it in this one. Yeah. All right, so what, what's it like in Abraham's bosom? Torment or pleasant? Pleasant. Pleasant. And in Hades or Gehenna or wherever this is, what was it like there? Thirsty and... Hot. Hot, right? Does it mention, I see, torment. Right. So suffering is burning. Suffering and burning. Okay. So, you know, some of the cheaper hotels in town. So what what happens? They see each other or the rich man sees them across the Yeah, some kind of chasm, chasm mm-hmm. and says, Just bring me a drop of water for my tongue. I think it's funny that the rich guy is actually trying to tell the poor guy what to do. Almost as if things haven't changed. I was pushing this guy around before, and you know I can do it now. Why can't he do that? Because of this chasm, they can't. Mm-hmm. So reach in. either way, can't move. So what's he want if he can't get that? Great, that was 
wants uh, for his brothers to be warned that that there's this torment and to be saved from this torment. Okay. So, what's the bottom line? Five brothers. Five brothers. What's the bottom line? I love the bottom line. <laughs> if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, what is absolutely amazingly ironic about that statement? They weren't convinced when he was... They weren't convinced when a guy named Lazarus actually rose from the dead. Or he himself rose yeah. from the dead. But yeah, shortly thereafter. but this one here, we're talking Lazarus. So, what can you discern about the rich man? He ignored the poor. Okay. You have to get the dogs messing with this. I mean, well, because I think it, it Abraham gives a word of, of warning as a response to the rich man. I think that all of us could heed, which is like, oh, what are you talking about? You received your good reward. You were very comfortable in that world where he was miserable, which you did nothing to help or ease. And so now the tables are flipped and you're upset about that? Like, I think it would have been a more robust story if Gregory was allowed to write it. But it's good stuff. That is good. Which Gregory? This story becomes... That's Greg. Greg. This is Gregory. Gregory. This story, actually, Luke in general, I've got to say, makes the capitalist in me a little uncomfortable. Because Luke, throughout this, this, this week's reading, there's a lot of dinging of wealth. Dinging of people who are wealthy, dinging of having possessions... Not giving away your possessions. There's, I mean, there's a lot of references, and I think ultimately the goal is to argue for generosity. Sure. Generically speaking. Sure. But there's, I can understand, oh, I disagree, with people who would say that Luke is in fact, Yeshua and Luke is arguing for an ascetic lifestyle, where it's good to be poor. It may be the case. But how, much think it's, case. how much does a historian make? They really don't make much money. So. That's true. Yeah. So try to level the playing field. Okay. I think if we take it, I mean, that's why we have three synoptic answers, right? Oh, we have the entire stuff, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, it is interesting. Um, I think you get it. You get it next week with Zacchaeus. Historian of the hobby. You didn't read about Zacchaeus, right? This week. Man. Yeah. So next week is Zacchaeus because I just. I just did next week's lesson, so I'm, I'm yeah, trying to stay with it. So, that's well, possible. That's possible. There was one thing that I actually bookmarked that made me feel a little bit better, too, because I felt very convicted just reading through Luke, because I get the same impression. But there's, in verse, uh, let's see, so chapter 16, verse 11, I think this might shed some light on some of the strong things against wealth, where he says, therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous money, who will commit to you, uh, to your trust, the true riches? And so I think if you take that and sort of apply it to some of his other statements about wealth, what you end up with is a really nice description of saying, like, look, if you misuse the money that you're given and you're not, you're not being generous with it, you're, you're being stingy with it, then there's no reason why you mm-hmm. should be entrusted with the true riches, mm-hmm. which that means by, by making a little comparison like that, that means the other way works. If you are faithful with material money, the evil money in some translations, then you'll be trusted 
with the riches because I mean even Judaism agrees that like some people are blessed with wealth so that they can support Torah scholars. You exactly. know, it's like that's just kind of the way that that it works. But what is one reason? I think the reason why we're reading so much about wealth in these passages of Luke. May I? Please. I mean, I think, in at least in Luke 16, when you get to verse 14, <clears throat> where uh, well, ver verse 13 ends with, you cannot serve God and Mammon. wealth. Yeah. The very next verse, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening. Yeah. Right? That's it. So it, 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 it may simply be, he knows they've got an issue yeah. in this particular in that area. area. And he, and he and had a he young man is, come up to him the same way earlier he's on. He's driving. Yeah. Oh, I, don't, I, I don't interpret this at all as him saying wealth is bad. Right. Uh, but I think he's being consistent with the Tanakh. The love of wealth right. is a problem. Bad. Yeah. I, I personally believe that the reason why we're reading so much about wealth is because there's so many Pharisees hanging around. And Pharisees, by definition, were wealthy. Simple as that. So he's got a lot of wealthy people around him. He realizes that most of them have a problem with dealing with money. So he's going to, to press on it. You then you. And not that anecdotal evidence is necessarily convincing, but um, the, with the exception of the young rich man. Uh, Who it, went away saddened. saddened. <laughs> um, Yeshua, doesn't, oddly enough, doesn't call people out to get rid of wealth. There's a lot of wealthy people that interface with Yeshua. Of course, we talk about Nachtimon, Joseph of Arimathea, obviously, was a follower, and he was quite wealthy. Both of them. Both of them are quite wealthy. Yeah. Nachtimon, apparently, was like, he's, he's, like financing the rebellion kind of wealth. Exactly, yeah. So, um, he, these are extremely wealthy men. Yeshua has no words for Nachtimon about wealth. Similarly, when we move forward to Acts, eventually, um, they interface with Lydia, who is renowned for her wealth. In fact, they make a point of mentioning her wealth in, right. in the account, right. and yet there's no comment about her anything like to get rid of it, aside from the fact that she's very generous to let the apostles stay in her home and whatnot. Yeshua seems to be followed along by wealthy women who, I mean, apparently are financing his ministry. I mean... Well, you have three or four of them, and again, that, that may be they realized why they were given that wealth and wanted to use it for the right thing. So the idea that, like, I think that the idea of, um, oh, I forgot his name right now, the um, the, in, the kind of famous uh, Catholic priest who gives up everything. I've lost his name now. The idea from some who argue that Yeshua is calling for a life of true asceticism, where... Thomas Aquinas? Uh, Francis. Francis yeah, of Assisi. Yeah, Francis of Assisi. That idea where poverty is righteous mm. and wealth is evil, yeah. I don't think that jives with Yeshua or his disciples, and it definitely doesn't jive with the rest of Scripture. I mean, my wife pointed out that we just got, we've been reading in the Parashah about Abraham and Isaac, who are incredibly wealthy men. So wealthy that they're actually asked to, you know, Isaac's asked to move on. Right. Well, in one of John's epistles, he says, above all brethren... I would that you prosper. He's talking about yeah. uh, monetary, work. monetary prosper, financial. financial prosper, and be in health, even as your soul prospers. Amen. Yeah. Amen. So, I think, the, yeah. The clarification point for me is like because sometimes Yeshua does have some strong words about like 
sell everything, like, you know, get, get rid of it all. But, like, I think there's a lot of the, the discrepancy is tied up in, like, how you become wealthy. Like, because it's clear from Abraham, Isaac, all these other guys, like, it doesn't describe how necessarily they got wealthy by, like, working really hard or something like that. It's really, like, all blessings from Hashem. So it's like the key is when, if you are accumulating wealth, as some of the Proverbs you know, says not to do, in a hasty manner and like constantly trying to, to get more and more, and, and that's your main focus, I think that's sort of where but there's again, an issue. The problem is not the wealth. The problem is your attitude about the wealth. It's right. the love of money. Right. Exactly. That would okay. be consistent. I think it would be a big mistake if we were to read the gospel messages and stories and take them completely out of context and say, well, see, we're not supposed to have any money. We have to sell everything that we have. I mean, that, that's just a mistake that, and quite frankly, many in the church have done. Weren't the Sadducees very wealthy as well, too? They were. And, and kind of wealthy off the backs of the people coming to the temple, right? Yeah. I mean, to me, I think that's, they're, they're in my mind, I think that's why Yeshua was killed. What made him more over money? And, and as we discussed in the very first lesson that maybe you didn't get to, is they're there illegitimately. They're not rightful. They should not be in charge. They've simply bought the office. Right. That's a big mistake. Yeah. But as we're talking about wealth and generosity and Yeshua's digging this issue in the Pharisees, I think that it's also important to keep in context why is the temple destroyed 30 years later? For baseless hatred. What's the issue? This really a problem in and amongst Judaism at this time frame, and really has been an issue in Judea slash Jerusalem since some of the minor prophets back over here, has been the issue of not taking care of the poor. That has been the issue. And it's not a state responsibility, it's a personal responsibility. And so I think that Yeshua's complaints and critiques are really centered around their treatment of others. Not so much how much money they personally had, but how much they would they held on to it and weren't willing to share. I mean, that's one of his references about giving the feast. Julian pointed this out. This is really smart. He, she's like, he says, "Don't throw a feast for your wealthy friends. Throw it for the poor and the crippled." The ones like, can't pay you back. The ones can't pay you back. But she's like, "But if you didn't have money, you couldn't do that. You'd exactly. be one of those guys looking for a free meal." So, like, the idea that wealth is inherently bad. I just mistake. don't think it's there. That's exactly right. You've got to take one or two verses out of context. Exactly. So yeah. let's avoid doing that. You can't give what you don't have. That's right. Right. And so... Um, and if you're not faithful with a little bit, it's not going to give you a lot. If you're trying to get all you can, and then can all you can, and then sit all the can, <laughs> that's a problem. Right. <laughs> I like it. We need to remember that it is God who gives us the ability to make wealth. Mm-hmm. Did he have anything to say? It was the same thing. Um, Luke sixteen fourteen about the Pharisees were lovers of money. All right. So I noticed as I was reading that the disciples ask the master to increase their faith. Did he? Help our lack of faith. Why, if you had faith, like a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, get up over here and move over there. If you had faith like this, what should I liken the kingdom to? The kingdom is like a lump of dough. The kingdom is like this big old tree. Does he ever step up and go, 
Your faith's been increased. I was asked, faith in what? I can only assume him, but it's a good question. I didn't think about it. Because the way I think about it is, just like when uh, they saw him walking on water, Peter walks on water, and they say, oh, you have, oh ye of little faith. faith. Faith in what? I mean, he's standing there in front of Yeshua. I don't think it's faith in Yeshua. I think it's faith in himself. He has little faith in himself. That's why he sinks. So I'm asking here. I'm going to argue that. Is it faith in himself that he has to have, or faith that God will hold him up? Because I think that you can have, I think we have all had times where we have literally been seeing the miracle of God, and yet waver in our confidence that God is going to be able to do what we need him to do. Okay. I think that's really Peter's situation there. So Peter gets out, he walks in the water because he has faith. He believes that Yeshua is there and he can tell him to do so. He sees but he gets the wind, which you can't really see. And he gets, yeah, well, true. But he gets, he gets scared. And in that moment, he loses sight of that faith. Well, we talked about it. You can't have fear and faith at the same time. Right. So You, the you question, can't feel, fear the circumstances around you and yet have faith in God being above and beyond the circumstance. Those two don't fit together. I get that. But when they ask him to increase their faith, I, I, I never got the impression that their faith got increased by what he said. It didn't increase my faith. But it didn't really seem... Well, if you had faith, you could almost, do this. Right, it doesn't even <laughs> I seem, get that. I want that. I was going to say, it doesn't feel like he's saying it needs to be increased. It feels like he's saying... Only a little bit will do it? You're, you got it. Just do it. Almost. It's kind of like... Ah, okay. Because... And actually, this, this brings up a whole other issue that I'm curious to get your thoughts on. Because this, this little parable that he tells, you can pick up a tree and tell the mulberry tree you to see. And it will yes, make you. Yeah. Okay, so clarify this for me. When we talk about faith, because someone to Jerry's point, faith in what? Okay, so faith in God to do what he said he'd do. I think most of us are pretty good about that. We believe that God loves us, that God's going to do the right thing for us, whatever. But when we ask God for something... This is almost implying that we have to actively believe that we ask for God's going to do, even if it's not a promise. We ask God that the rain's going to not fall today because we got a picnic outside. we got to believe it's not going to fall that day. And if we act like it's going to fall, then, well, that's a lack of faith. I mean, I don't, I don't know how else to read this, but that doesn't feel right, but I'm not really sure what else to say about it. Before just, everybody else comments, because you surely don't want to just ask me, because we could do that privately. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to take. I'm going to argue your your opening point that I mean we all believe that God says what He's going to do, and, and you know things are going to work out all right. I don't believe that all the time. Yeah, right, right. I would not be worried about, am I going to be able to make the payroll this week? That thought would never come to mind if I truly had faith. Right. right? So I think in the nitty-gritty of the day, moment by moment, we all need to back up and remember, I'm just a player here. He's pulling the strings. I'm nothing but a steward, and I just need to do the righteous move each time. It's out of my hand. Oh, right. I guess my question is... is and I, I don't do that I'm all the time. contrasting the ab, more abstract faith, faith that God can versus, versus faith specific. that God will do X. So if you're praying that it doesn't rain for the picnic, and I'm praying that it does rain for the pharmacy, does the one who has the most faith win out? <laughs> 
Well, that's what I'm asking about. I mean, like, like it has come up in the past. This is a kind of a silly example, but I think it's worth bringing up. Uh, the question of, you know, athletes talk about asking God to help them win. Right. And people have said, is that even appropriate? Is it appropriate? And if, what if two strong believers on both uh, opposite teams are praying the same thing? Right. So the question, I guess, is like, for example, Abraham has faith that God's going to give him a child. But Abraham is an explicit promise from God that he's going to have a child. Correct. So the question I would say is, if you don't have an explicit promise for the fact that it won't rain for your picnic on Sunday, mm -hmm. are, do you need to have definitive, I believe that this is going to happen kind of faith for that prayer to be is it a, something of a guarantee to be answered then? I mean, that's, I'm, I'm just wondering, because this mulberry tree thing, it's kind of a weird example. Well, that's my point. He never says, you don't need to worry about the faith thing. Because if you've got this much faith, you can do all of it. He doesn't say it that way. I will give you a quick example, just so that it gives them more time to think. I've never really been concerned about God's reputation not my job as long as I'm not damaging it <laughs> right. so uh, one of my children who will, re will remain nameless but it was a, a, a young girl um, lost something valuable <clears throat> here in the house and she matter-of-factly said daddy would you pray with me that God would show me where it is. Sure. So we sat down on the couch, and she prayed. And while she's praying, the only thing I'm praying is, God, for goodness sakes, if you're going to jump in any time, now would be a really good time. Please, show her where the thing is. Show me where it is. I don't care. Just show her where it is. This would be really, really bad if she came out. <laughs> I'm just trying to help. So I think you're saying... I should have had her faith and just prayed that God would open her eyes or remind her or have her stumble across And expect that she will. And expect that she will. And she did find it. <laughs> <laughs> almost right away. It was, it was like, almost like get up off the couch. Hmm. Here it is. You know, it was one of those and you're like, Jesus keep <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's amazing. So, I don't know. What do you think? What do you think? Oh, man. I've had one of those. I've, I've had one of those uh, personal experiences before. Uh, just previously, um, me and the family went to uh, Grey Wolf Lodge, and we packed everything. And I knew I didn't forget. I knew I packed everything, and, every, and everything was settled. So when we were on the way home, we, were, we got home. By the time... I unpacked, and everybody was downstairs, and we were all done with our family night. I came upstairs, and I'm like, oh, no. What happened? This, there's something out of missing. place here. There's something out of place here. And I was devastated because there's a certain thing I've had since I was, like, three. I mean, it was one of those things that you will never let go of. So it was really traumatizing for me because I did not want to let this thing go. Sure. And then, so we... So I prayed hard, like super duper ultra hard. And so then when I went to take a shower because I wanted to calm down and clean myself so I didn't have to have this guilty feeling for, because I left it at that of the Great Oak Lodge and thinking of all those thoughts and stuff. And then when I got out of the shower and I was 
just getting in bed. It was sitting on my bed right there under a cover, and I'm like, yes. Cool. It's it was neat, one, it's, it was one of those moments. Yeah. It was just so amazing. You but, remember that moment? But that was that was actually in the middle of the night. I mean, it was in the middle of the night because I, I had to go hard. It was kind of hard to sleep, and then I went to the bathroom, came back. Oh, there it is. Yeah. So it was one of those. It was All one right. Of those so moments. so what about the faith thing? Does he increase their faith, or does he just give them examples, or what? What's your what's your thoughts? Obviously, we've all got some stories. And I still haven't answered my question because there are things that I want, and if I need to start believing that it's going to happen, then you know, fine. Well, the church does teach that, right? If you don't have it, you didn't pray hard enough, or you don't believe hard enough that well, you're going to get it. Well, it's in Luke that says that. Sure, sure. And if you claim it, well, right? See, that's the point. Like asking for it enough. I don't know. It's an interesting question. Do we have any examples yet? We're almost done with this ministry. It's only a week of so reading wait, Does that mean that deaf people have demons in them? <laughs> or mute people? Because remember it said that like um, the, those people <laughs> had demons in them. They did. Those did. <laughs> Maybe they don't. Now, it's possible. There's a sect of the church that believes exactly that. The only reason... That you're uh, having trouble is because of sin or a demon, whatever the case might be. Is this not making any noise? Is there no way no, you can know? No, noise at all. Count? Really? So how's it's that not even lighting up. Really? Does that count as that colorblind? He's back. He's back. And Frederick says, "For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." And then he says, "When praying, name it and claim it." Blab it and grab it, baby. There you go. <laughs> blab, it, blab, it, blab it, grab it. I love that's it. a good point because that's what I was doing that night. <laughs> and then uh, Tom asks, "I know he can, but will he? I don't know. That's his choice. Is that lacking in faith?" Right. That's my question. Tom, See, that's his question. Back to your point about if something hasn't been promised to you. It also hadn't been promised to pretty much everybody that asked him for healing that it would happen to them. But they but were they believe, because of their faith. They believe that he would. And, and he said, he could. it's because of your faith. Can he, could he, would he? Yes, he can, he could he, would he do? Right, and I guess the question is, is it belief that he can or belief that he will? Because those are two different things. I, I'm pretty sure... Uh, I don't think most people have will. a problem believing he can. Right, right. 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 And, if, you and believe, that, if you believe in God, who's a God who's omniscient and omnipotent, and etc., there's usually not a lot of issue. Yeah. He's God. He can yeah. and, and I think If he can't do it, he's not God. Right. And I think but in it's what, more the will he. And I think in what we're reading, it's obviously they, they thought he could. That's why they were screaming to him, please heal me. You know, right. Yeshua, son of David, right? And the, and the crowd is trying to my will quiet him down or something. Going with his will. <laughs> yeah. You know, is, there a, are, is there a consistency probably, there? There's nothing. Probably guaranteed to get what you're praying for. Tom says we have to take the first step. God responds to our faith. Well, yeah, I mean, if you ask, you will receive. You just may, may not receive receive what you asked for. <laughs> but are, are there any examples in Yeshua's ministry where that happened? Where someone asked for something and he said, nah, yeah. that's your answer. Well... Um, I'd like to sit at your right hand and my brother sit at your left. 
guy that's like... If the answer was, can you take the baptism that I'm about to take? Yes, you will take it. But it's not for me to give who sits on my left or right. That's the only one that comes to mind that didn't come to pass. But to your point, I don't know that we have an example of the kind of things we're talking about here because maybe our prayers and what we're talking about right now is more the cares of the world that he's trying to say, you shouldn't be messing with that. The birds of the field, you know, they're dressed better than Solomon. Well, right, because in the, in the context of that, ask, you shall receive, not to be open, he ends with, if you ask for the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, you will receive it. Which is interesting, because rather than ending with, and you name it, you can, you'll have it, you know, that kind of thing, he doesn't, he, he, he specifies a very, 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 very specific thing, which is entirely spiritual in nature, yeah. at the end of that, rather than giving it a broad general application. Right, that's true. That's true. I'm just trying to think about this because, of course, the scriptures don't really have examples where somebody asks out for something, it doesn't happen because that's life. Like, that doesn't really teach you a whole lot, generally speaking, I feel like. Whereas the scriptures are mostly about, like, the fantastic things. I don't come here, and if someone asks me, how was your work day today? I don't tell you the things that happen every day. That's I just went not to a, lunch. Right, that's I not a story. I my pencil. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I tell you the dramatic things that happen, or I say it was a good day. Sure, which is what the Gospels are as well. Which is, yeah, and and really in some ways what all the Tanakh is when it comes to the narratives. But surely we can learn something from the way people asked and what he kept saying. And I think his, his point over and over again, at least in this week's thing, was you're, you're so wrapped up in the world and you don't need to be. Martha comes to him and says... You're, you're teaching, and I want to sit at your feet like my sister is, but she, she, just tell her to help me serve. I mean, and he says, she's chosen the better thing here. What she's doing is more important. There's another example of somebody who asked and did not receive. I guess, and this is a slightly different set of circumstances, but the other example that comes to mind is um, is the old priest in the in the temple when they take Yeshua up for his pidyon haben? Mm-hmm. What was his name? Simeon. Simeon. Thank you, Shimon. So it's clear from the context oh, of that he's been he's praying. been waiting. Mm-hmm. He's been praying and mm-hmm. waiting. Mm-hmm. For a long, long time, yeah, like, the like, like years. We don't know exactly how many years, but he could have been waiting for this for 20, 30, yeah, or more. Yeah. You know. um, and it reminded me of the verse in Psalm sixty-two, verse five, that says, "My soul waits, waits only upon you, God, um, and my expectation is from Him." Or my hope is another way mm-hmm. that's translated. Mm-hmm. So it's this idea of we we're encouraged to pray and ask God for things. You have small things because you don't ask. Big things, Good. things that may seem trivial, you know, in the in the cosmic context of eternity, mm-hmm. but. It's our daily things, and and yet there's also these really big things, you know, um, 
profound spiritual matters that we should be prayerful about as well. And I think the scripture wants us to uh, pursue him for all of that and have faith that one, he hears our prayers and that he will answer the prayer for our good. Agreed. Which sometimes may mean he it's doesn't not, answer the prayer, it, right? Because, or he doesn't answer it the way you want. Right, because you know, there's probably times where we're praying for something that we think is what mm-hmm. should happen mm-hmm. or what we need. Yeah, and the answer is no. And it's actually completely wrong. Yeah. Um, and he knows, obviously. Sure. So, but the prayer I've heard is <coughs> oftentimes to get us to be more conformed to his will. Sure. So I get that. Yes. But see, they could have, uh, like, the person when when the disciples couldn't cast out the the demon, yeah. like that person well, and everybody around prayer. could have said the same thing, like, ah, wasn't God's will. But Yeshua doesn't say that. He says, like, well, that the only reason he couldn't do that was because you didn't have enough faith. And then he healed them. And he says, like, these have to be cast out with prayer. He's only come out through prayer. Yeah. Right. But, like, so th- there's also that side of it, too, where it's like, I don't know. Like, how do you know? Is it just because something happens that it means that that was God's will? Because in which case, like, what really is faith then? Well, If I, just God's will is just going to happen anyway, well, then, like... You know what I mean? Like, there's a problem if we get into fatalism, right? If God is God, then what He desires is going to come to pass. But He still does choose to bend His will to our free will. God does not wish that any should perish, but some will. In fact, many will. In fact, some of you on this case, no. So, I th- I think for me, we got to close this out because we got to finish up. For me, to your point, I really want an FN 1903 that was the forerunner of the Colt 1911. I really want one. And the only one I can find is $7,000. I'm not going to buy a $7,000 handgun or I won't be married anymore. <laughs> so uh, you laugh. <laughs> Wait, your time will come. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um, so sorry. I think it's completely inappropriate for me to pray for an FN 1903 that's less than $7,000. I'm, I'm never going to pray for that. It, that's not, it, I believe, something I should be praying about. Now, Lord, it would be great if my business goes well and you cause me to prosper. And if I should prosper so much and I have prepared and helped so many that an FN 1903 drops out of the sky into my lap. Now, that would be wonderful. Maybe I'll help save some guy's life. Heart-to-heart massage, you know? And boom! The guy wakes up and says, you saved my life. By the way, I've got this FN 1903. <laughs> I, so I think, again, to what the Master was saying on a regular basis, we are focused on this world, and we need to be focused on the kingdom. And if our focus is on the kingdom, then I shouldn't be praying so much for whether or not I can get a new sweatshirt but whether or not this guy needs new shoes. And, and that, I think, changes the final comment on this point. I, 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 think, I think the act, there's a couple of ways I, I think about this. So there's an act of faith in asking, seeking, and knocking, as the Master said, right? Sure. Uh, and so he, he encourages us to do that. 
But there's a second act of faith, which is once we have put forward the petition, right, that we then trust God. We know he can do it. That shouldn't be an issue. Right. Uh, and we, we should believe that he will do what's in our best interest. And, and so I think we make our petitions known. We cast our burdens on him, you know. And then there's a second act of faith, which is then we trust him and for believe. the outcome. Amen. I, I think to dovetail with that, we had the story of the widow who bangs on the unrighteous judge's door demanding justice. Did you read that? Where's that next week? This week. Good. <laughs> All right. So, so what does he say? Or rather, this week was the, the friend. The friend with the, you know, the comes banging room. on the door at the end of the night. Oh, the, night. Right, yeah. the kids are already in bed. You don't know, remember, you remember the judge? Okay, the judge is, judge. The judge is next the week. Right, that's right. Our maid in the middle of the night. Right. In the, the, yeah. Her friend in the middle of the night. Yeah. Why is he going to do it? Because he's persistent and he's showing up and he's got the chutzpah, is really the translation there, to ask. To me, that's it. I think, I think uh, if I'm not mistaken, chutzpah has been translated to faith. Yeah. And I think that chutzpah is what, I think that's what they're asking for. They, they want that, that grind and boldness is okay. what I think they're asking for. And not, not this faith in you. I mean, they're standing there with him. That's why I keep saying that. They stand there with him. I, yeah. You're standing right there. Yeah. I, I know you're there. Yeah. Right? And I have fact, that faith. In fact, it's when he's taken off and away that Peter falls apart. Exactly right. Give me the boldness. Give me that chutzpah to, to, to fight for you, to do the things I need to do. But again, I would, I would caution you and I would encourage you to read through what he's talking about and look at every example and you'll see. These are people that are the guy in the middle of the night. I have guests that just showed up and I need some food to feed them. Dad, I need a fish. Here's a stone. Right? His, his, his play here is he's your heavenly father. He cares about you. He will give you what you need. Not necessarily what you want. You may want a new handgun. But if there's anybody on the planet who does not need a new handgun, it's probably me. <laughs> All right, good, uh, good comments. I don't know if we helped you out at all, but uh, thanks for playing. But thanks for playing. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> all right, go to the last page of the study guide for your handout for tonight for lesson five review. And um, while you're going there, I'll start to read it. And uh, for those of you who are watching remotely, uh, if there is a handout that I'm walking through at the end of class, it'll always be in the last page of the study guide. So if you don't have that with you, you're welcome to go online. It is there now. It wasn't there three hours ago. One ten second comment about the building faith. Yes, sir. He did send them all out and say, heal and cast out the Do all this stuff, yeah. And they went and they did it. And they came back and they were surprised and they were thrilled. They were like, Master, yeah, the demons were jumping out of our way. It was great. That's a good point. So powerful. And James and even says, like, the prayer of the righteous will heal the sick. It affects... It's effectual, and it, it affects many. Wouldn't we love it, though, if we could just do that? pray and everybody's healed every time? You know, that would be wonderful, especially yeah. Obama. Obama we're going we're gonna to talk about that. That's kind of what I was getting at, to where is it like, are we saying, like, 
Well, God's will just prevails in the end because we we have personally experienced situations where we thought we prayed boldly and it didn't happen. Like, is that just our explanation? My or? explanation has always been when I have prayed that God would heal someone, if they did not heal, if they did not get well, I asked, I know he can do it. And I know I asked. Therefore, if it didn't happen... He doesn't want it to happen. Or he doesn't want it to happen now. I know those things to be true. In fact, praying for someone who did not get well has strengthened my faith. Because I knew I had prayed with boldness and with perfect faith. But that's just me. Is there any reason he wouldn't? Well, for sure. He didn't heal Lazarus. Right? The kid that died, the widow named son, he could have prevented that. Right? Mm-hmm. All right, we'll, we will come back to this topic. I can see that it's important. So everybody got this? Nobody got this? Anybody need a printer? Everybody? All right, we're good? All right. It is considered a great mitzvah of kindness and compassion to make a shiva call to mourners who are sitting shiva, a practice known as nechum avalim. Traditionally, no greetings are exchanged, and visitors wait for the mourners to initiate conversation or remain silent if the mourners don't do so, out of respect for their bereavement. How many of you have actually sat shiva with somebody? Word, sat shiva yourself. Okay. Um, in the book of, uh, I think it's Second Kings, Gehazi is sent out on a mission for a mourning woman. Remember that? The, uh, the child died. His mission, if you think about it, involves death, not unlike the shiva thing, so uh, Elisha says to Gehazi, tie up your garment, take my staff in your hand, and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, don't reply. Lay my staff on the face of the child. I only remembered that, a Remez thing. That's what Yeshua says. Because it's exactly what he says. In, uh, to the 72 or the 70 apostles, depending on which Greek translation you're reading, uh, in Luke 10. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Taking your staff shows up in a previous version of that story, if I remember correctly. Or is it no staff? Yeah, no staff, no money bag, no sandals, none of that. So, interesting. I thought, you know, Hmm. greet no one on the road. I wonder why not. Strangers? Can't trust them? Because... They're on a mission. They are on a mission, right? They're, he's sending them out. They're sh- they're, Same as Gehazi. They're sh- they're, they're, right. They, they are, are they shlichim. Are shlichim. And if you're and doing shlichim, the Greek thing, they're apostles. A shlichim is only supposed to do what they've been sent to do. They're yeah. not supposed to... A true ambassador right. for the one who sends them. That's right. Good. So they have to have a focus. That's right. That's right. And I would submit, we talked two weeks ago, about the master setting his face towards Jerusalem is precisely this same deal. He's on a mission. Uh, now, okay. and, and we can, I'll tee this up and we can talk about it later because I know we're out of time, but in that same kind of few passages, he says, uh, eat what's set before you. I'm coming to that. Are you not reading this? Give me oh, a second. Okay. I've got a half a paragraph to go. Oh, okay. So, is the master implying that those visited in the neighboring towns were as good as dead? I was just wondering. Or was it strictly the, the sending deal? Probably the sending deal. Um, 
But it's interesting that they're not to greet anybody. All right, so traditionally, while sitting Shiva, the mourners do not leave the home, but leaving the Shiva house is permitted when you're traveling between two locations where Shiva is being observed by different members of the family. Who are the guys that, by the way, um, you've heard that the master had 12 apostles because they were sent ones. That's what apostolos means. He had 72 right here. It is The word apostle is right there. They are sent. Shlikim in Hebrew, apostle in Greek. So, who did he send them to? It's not a trick question. Villages. Where? In 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 Israel. Who are they going to see? Jesus. Jews. Jews. Who are therefore by definition brothers and sisters. He did not send them specifically. You can't go to the Samaritans, you can't go to non Jews. So literally, just like in sitting Shiva, where you can travel to two places that are sitting Shiva, observed by different family members, um, it seems to fit this tradition. In fact, he says in Luke 10, remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide for the laborer deserves his wages, do not go from house to house. Just like the Shiva thing. It's interesting. So there's two things we've got that are just like that. And then finally... Traditionally, when making a shiva call, food is provided. And both the mourners and the visitors eat whatever is set before them. And the master just said that, eating and drinking whatever they provide. Paul said exactly the same thing to the Corinthian believers. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you, without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So what do you make of that? Vegetarian, you're not supposed to say that they are weak, even though they are weak. Okay. I don't know why it says that. Yeah, it's a different part of it. I thought that made Paul's comment make sense for the first time. I, I, I've always loved Paul's comment. I, I like that concept of being trying not to offend somebody, and obviously serving pork or shrimp or tea. Sure. You don't you don't eat that. Sure. But if it's unclear exactly, did it have a stamp on it or whatever else, right, then fine. Right. You know, but then, but at, but at the same time, it's a, it's a little unnerving because it's like, last time I remember a story where people were being served something they weren't so sure about. That feels like Daniel and his buddies, and they're like, definitely do not give me the meat and the wine. Make sure you give me vegetables only. So it sort of felt like, you know, how do you know, where is Paul just making this up? So this week reading this passage got me thinking oh that's where Paul got it exactly. I'm not entirely certain exactly where Yeshua is developing it from although it does fit his overall um, mercy first halakha but I thought it was very interesting because it made me feel better about Paul it's like oh so he's citing a Yeshua comment because Paul can't make it up out of whole cloth right and it's or very, out of holy cloth right yeah. I mean I, you know I, I might you know if I had trouble figuring out where it came from I would trust Yeshua's words I try to figure out where it came from. I'm not as inclined to trust Paul. So the fact that Paul's pulling it from Yeshua makes me feel much yeah. better about it. And it that. appears that he is. I mean, it's it's almost verbatim. So I feel better about it. Go ahead. I, I have you no practice idea. this. I have no idea if this is uh, if this fits or not. It kind of makes sense to me. But I, I just recently became aware of a, of some halacha related kashrut for someone who is traveling. Okay. 
And there's leniencies if you're traveling that previously I wasn't I wasn't aware of. Okay. And I and I'm not I, I still have some more study to do on the particulars, but um, but uh, you can if you're traveling you can go into a home or whatever and you are permitted to eat some some things that you may or may not know for certain right um how it's been prepared right you know it's primarily in the context of preparation uh but there are certain leniencies within within current halakha that allow you to eat anyway yeah uh, and and so it's i don't surprising. know i don't know when that halakha developed relative to this right but when i was reading this and because i just became aware of these jumped off the pages like, huh you know, about that you know he's sending them they're going to be traveling yeah they're going to be going into homes that they may or may not know the people that well right so they may or may not know you know what their level of you know, or if at all, what their standard is, um, yeah. And he, but he's basically giving them a leniency, exactly. And it kind of fits with at least the current halakha. Yeah, so. I, I think the the only caution I I thought of was, it's a known commodity, right? If somebody's going to invite you into their home, then they're going to know where you stand. I mean, nobody's going to eat dinner at my house unless I understand where they're coming from. And I'm going to try and do my best not to offend them. And Greg and I have had this conversation years back, and that's the first time that I heard you make it clear that if, if you're going over a believer's house, you know, obviously you're not going to eat something that's not kosher, but you're, you're not going to, you know, throw up all kinds of fences and stuff to say, I appreciate you cooking that steak for me, but I can't eat that steak or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so I, I was... I guess like most of you, I was surprised to see that and to see so much of it kind of fit in with any type of bereavement hmm. made me wonder if we shouldn't be just a little bit more focused on the brevity of life. Caring for one another while we're still here and providing for one another, whether it's close friends or it's strangers, whether it's folks that can reciprocate and have us over for dinner, or it's the poor. Um, I've not gotten to the point yet where I'm going on the highways and byways and you know having guys that have no no pants you know show up and or uh, folks that smell really 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 bad you know come to dinner. But uh, maybe I should be you know starting to do that and and so forth. But good stuff. Final comments on this? Yes, sir. No? Good. All right, let me... Uh... Are there any comments that uh, you didn't hear about there? Just checking. I've been checking. There's got to no. be a way to figure out why that's not making noise. That made noise. That made noise. No, that wasn't this. Oh, that wasn't this? Oh, the staff. That was that was that. Oh, oh, good. Did you stand up enough? Yeah. Actually, let's take. Let's take a look. Oh, this is my. Is it move goal? Oh, <laughs> this is this is my wife's rings, not mine. 
she just achieved a goal. So it's oh, funny. nice, cool. All right, that's good. <laughs> All right. That makes people think he did the That's a good idea. Checking out us. Tough workout today, boy, I'll tell you. <laughs> got the rings. Got the rings. We thank you, Adonai, our God, that you have established our portion with those who dwell in the study hall and come here and do this. And you have not established our portion with idlers, for we arise early and they arise early. We arise early for the words of Torah. And they arise early for idle words. We toil, they toil, we toil and receive reward. They toil and do not receive reward. We run and they run, we run to the life of the world to come, and they run to the pit of destruction. As it is written, and you, O God, you will lower them into the well of destruction, then of bloodshed and deceit shall not live out half their days. But for us, we will trust in you. Amen. 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 All right.